This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 1st, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. A unanimous Supreme Court last week finally gave relief to a family that had been mired in litigation with the Environmental Protection Agency all over their desire to build a home on their lakefront property. The Sackett case will have implications beyond the protection of wetlands and how the federal government regulates water. Charles Yates of the Pacific Legal Foundation represented the Sacketts. We spoke earlier this week. I don't want to get too in the weeds here because it's very easy to get into the weeds on this particular issue, but let's let's clear up some clutter in that might be lingering in people's brains about what this decision was. On the substantive question of whether or not the EPA overstepped its bounds, what was the level of unanimity on the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, it was non-zero, Caleb. It was a, a unanimous judgment in favor of the Sacketts and a, a unanimous rebuke of, of the agencies and their, their overstepping under the Clean Water Act. Okay. With that aside, the uh, the way it was presented in public, at least, was that this was a lot maybe more narrow than uh, falling along traditional, well-understood ideological lines on this court. What was the difference uh, among justices in evaluating uh, the Sackett's claims against the EPA? So there was a, a five-justice majority led by Justice Alito and then a, a primary concurrence written by Justice Kavanaugh. Now, as I said, the judgment was unanimous. They all determined the Sackett's property is not subject to EPA's authority, and they all rejected the significant nexus test, which is the primary test under which uh, EPA has relied to assert jurisdiction over wetlands. The difference is really in the reasoning and how to get there. Uh, Justice Alito's majority, uh, they adopted a test that was slightly narrower and and more akin, very similar to the plurality test from the Rapanos opinion in 2006. Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence was a little broader in scope, and it focused really on this question of adjacency. And under his view, certain uh, a sort of slightly larger swath of wetlands could come in under federal jurisdiction under this sort of slightly broader understanding of when a wetland can be adjacent to a true water. But it's really just a question of reasoning. And again, underscore unanimous rejection of the significant nexus test, which is the position that the government advocated here. Well, let, let's understand uh, when the FDA overstepped its authority, what was the overstepping of the authority as determined by the Supreme Court? Essentially, by determining that the Sackett's residential lot in Idaho, three-quarter of an acre residentially zoned lot, uh, was a water of the United States for purposes of the Clean Water Act because the agencies could sort of attenuate this daisy chain under the ground, under a road, down this creek, into the lake. All of the justices determined that was insufficient to determine federal jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. All right. So the Clean Water Act uh, has um, a long history, uh, as you mentioned, uh, back to the what, 70s? 1972. So what was the confusion that existed for so long with regard to EPA authority with regard to regulating water supplies? Yes. Yeah, so broadly speaking, the Clean Water Act, it was passed in 1972 by Congress ostensibly to, to prevent water pollution in the nation's many navigable waters. And what it does to do that, it creates a, a permitting regime which prohibits, absent the issuance of a federal permit, the discharge of a pollutant into a so-called navigable water, which is defined as a water of the United States. Now, the confusion comes from 
this term water of the United States. Really, that's the key because, I mean, what we have here, we have a federal statute granting authority to two agencies, EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers, and then we have a limitation on that authority saying you can only regulate in the navigable waters of the United States for purposes of the Clean Water Act. Now, the confusion comes from over the last 50 years, really beginning by the mid-1970s, EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers were interpreting that limitation, that statutory phrase, navigable waters, waters of the United States, not as a limitation on their authority, but really a broad, all-encompassing grant. So by the late 1980s, uh, they were interpreting it really as as authority to regulate virtually anything damp you could think of in the country, every ditch, wetland, tributary, pond, puddle. So it was really this, this classic case where agencies, taking what Congress has given them, have just gone on a mission to aggrandize their authority, and here they aggrandize it to the point where they are essentially acting as as federal land use administrators. They they essentially thought they had a zoning code before them, and they thought that they were empowered to go in and prevent a home building project on a single family lot in Idaho. So, uh, the broad implications of this case should extend well beyond EPA. What was the language in? the court's majority opinion that indicates that to you? Well, yes. So it certainly has very broad implications for the administration of the Clean Water Act, because now we have a a majority test that clearly limits the agency's authority as intended by Congress. But there is some broader application of this case for, for a couple of reasons. The first is the court was unanimous in looking to the text of the statute. Every single justice on the court considered their mission here to look at what Congress, the authority that Congress had granted to the agencies in the statute, and determine what that meant. Now, the agencies, they progressed this kind of broad, purposivist argument, essentially arguing, well, wetlands are important for ecological reasons, so we should be able to regulate them under the Clean Water Act. The court was unanimous in sort of rejecting that type of analysis and looking to the text and saying, well, what does the statute actually permit? So that's an important sort of takeaway in terms of the broader applications. We're seeing all justices on the Supreme Court rejecting these these broad kind of purposivist uh, approaches by the agencies to aggrandize their authority. Second, the majority in particular included a lot of language about how to interpret statutes, thinking about things like due process, right? The the, uh, The majority adopted this idea quite explicitly that when you have a statute like the Clean Water Act that contains criminal penalties it needs to be narrowly construed against the government. The government doesn't just have carte blanche to define its own authority when we're talking about criminal and civil prosecution. That's important as well. They really adopted this this idea that the government needs to be restrained when we're talking about taking people's liberty away. Another thing, they really focused on the federalism implications of the case. The majority did. Uh, They rejected EPA's significant nexus test uh, for one reason being that it essentially allowed the agencies, as I said before, to act as land use or zoning administrators, to take away this traditional power of the states, sort of usurp the state's traditional police powers in regulating land use and centralize that in EPA. So I think those are three kind of broader applications of the case that will reverberate beyond the Clean Water Act. Your clients, the Sacketts, have been engaged in this legal process, uh, broadly speaking, for a very long time. How did they react to this resolution? It was a, it was a great day for the Sacketts. I mean, they've been fighting the federal government um, simply for the right to, to engage in what was a quintessentially ordinary exercise of, of land use, right? They were trying to build a single family home 
on a residentially zoned lot uh, in a fully built out residential subdivision. And they had to go to court. They were threatened with tens of thousands of dollars per day in penalties. They went to court. The agencies argued they couldn't even couldn't even sue them in court for their right to build a home. They had to go to the Supreme Court once. And here we are 16 years later. And finally, uh, they have uh, secured the right uh, to build on their home without having to seek an incredibly costly federal permit. Yeah, it's, it's easy to forget that they had to sue for their right to even go to court. Yes, I think that that's really indicative of, of how EPA has, has operated for so many years. Uh, they think they just have carte blanche, sort of a limitless authority to 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 regulate. And the fact that that, that a landowner who'd been threatened with tens of thousands of dollars per day in penalties uh, could file a lawsuit and EPA could turn around with a straight face and fight all the way to the Supreme Court to prevent them from even even going to court is is really indicative of of how this this statute has operated for so many years. We expect, you know, the deference that courts have long given to administrative agencies will be put before the U.S. Supreme Court in short order. Um, what do you, is there anything that we can read into that future, those future cases uh, from this decision in the Sackett case? Well, yes. Yeah, so there, there's probably a couple of things sort of speaking broadly. The, the first is uh, EPA here, they did make a request for deference. It wasn't an explicit request for Chevron deference like you might see in some other cases, but they did make a plea for deference, and that plea evidently fell on on deaf ears. No justice on the Supreme Court would have deferred uh, to EPA in this case. I think another thing that sort of a broader implication is going back to sort of how the court approached the question here. Every justice on the court was concerned with the text of the statute and ascertaining what Congress had actually uh, given the agencies. No justice was convinced by these kind of broad, we're the experts, we know best, uh, we know what's best in terms of ecology, we think we should regulate wetlands uh, because uh, because that that's best in our estimation. Every justice in the Supreme Court said, well, that may be all well and good as a question of policy, but you, EPA, are not a policymaker. You are not empowered to engage in policymaking to enact essentially legislative rules that you think are the best way to go about things. We need to look to Congress and to the statute that Congress actually enacted. So I think that's a indicative of a really important shift in the way that courts are approaching the relationship between Congress and the agencies. And, and frankly, we should understand that in this case, as in many future cases that might follow on where uh, people have reliance on this, this uh, opinion in Sackett, this puts a lot on Congress now that uh, previously they might have felt perfectly comfortable to write a a vague law and then just hand it over to an administrative agency. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. I think um, for many years after the New Deal, uh, Congress really did feel that it could sort of write vague laws, broadly empower agencies to engage in a, essentially a, a policy making exercise. Uh, but the paradigm has shifted. Uh, the separation of powers is now at the center of many of these cases before the Supreme Court, and we're starting to see a broad recognition that Congress makes policy. And the agencies are simply there to enforce and implement those policies. That's a really important outcome of this case. In terms of future litigation, what does what does the Sackett case give us broadly? And I, I suppose specifically with reference to the Pacific Legal Foundation, which uh, won this case. 
you know, what do you expect to be the follow on? Are there cases waiting in the wings uh, that the Sackett decision clears up and makes more uh, righteous when you bring them to the court? Yeah. So in terms of Pacific Legal Foundation's own strategy from here, we I think we really need to wait and see. We need to spend a little more time with the decision. What does the court actually say? Uh, and then it's a question of what the agencies do. Uh, are they going to take the Sackett opinion and apply it faithfully, or are they going to engage in something to try and aggrandize their power yet again? But sort of from a non-PLF perspective, just more broadly in terms of litigation that is currently occurring that we're not directly involved in, this case will have significant implications. Uh, as you know, uh, the Biden administration, um, unthinkably, I, I, to this day, I do not understand why they did it. Uh, but earlier this year, they finalized their own definition of WOTUS for purposes of the Clean Water Act and began implementing that. That was challenged. Uh, and really, it's important to note that Biden WOTUS rule is underpinned by the significant nexus test in every vital respect. Um, the Supreme Court has now unanimously rejected the significant nexus test. So I would say there are significant implications for the lower court cases going on right now against that Biden rule. It's really hard to see uh, how the Biden rule even though it was not directly before the court in the Sackett case, given its reliance on the significant nexus test, could possibly survive a judicial review at this point in history. Charles Yates is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. We spoke earlier this week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.